Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. It's a bank holiday. Monday, second captain's podcast. But this isn't any old Bank Holiday Monday. It's a Bank Holiday Monday with a twist. As Ireland, we can say it now. The job is complete. Ireland are Grand Slam champions. Congratulations, Murph. Well done, Ken. Uh, well done to you too, Owen. Thanks, Owen. We are all part of this, nice Ken. Yeah, in a general sense of being Irishman, and in the more specific sense of releasing the Eddie Jones scummy Irish clip wow. in the middle of last week. I don't want to take too much credit for unnerving. The English Just coach in the We the have done the state some service Yeah indeed The tries on Saturday Murph The tries Jacob Stockdale's one handed finish mm-hmm. A la Shane Horgan CJ Stander powering to the line Festooned with Saxons <laughs> Like Ginger McLaughlin back in the day And a try from our old favourite The Gary Owen Which was the only technique we used for many years mm. I don't know if we scored tries from it, but the Gary Owen itself was yeah. the only technique we had to try to play rugby. In, in. So, yeah. Sorry, just before, I, my point is, we squeezed all our twick in the moments and much of our wider rugby history into one half of rugby there yeah. on Saturday. I like yeah, yeah, no, no, we did good there. Because we often would have launched a Gary Owen after six minutes, but that would have been the end of the plan. The plan A would have we, taken We didn't chase them or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, we just fired oh, how high yeah. it went. It was amateur sports, Simon. It was hard to get around yeah. the pitch. If he, if he drops it, he drops it. And if he catches it, he catches it. And we're still no, only on the halfway do, line at that yeah, point. We, we, could, we could do no more than that. <laughs> what did you guys make of it? What did you make of it, Ken? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose when I was just thinking back to the first game. Um, Le drop? Yeah. I mean, that was that was pretty impressive. You know? Le drop was impressive, yeah. You know, when you when you think about it in the context of the whole campaign, usually the whole, the whole thing would have just been over after one game. Mm. And... Even if they'd won the next four and beaten it, like I mean, how comfortable was that? <laughs> I mean, how, surprisingly, how easy was? I, I know they kind of let in a try at the end or whatever, but they still they still won the game easily by a number of points, right? By nine points. If if it was if it wasn't for the concession of that try in the last minute, two minutes after the clock had run over mm. eighty minutes, it would have been England's heaviest defeat at Twickenham in five or six nations history. Really. That's incredible. Yeah. Oh, that would have been a nice record to have. I'm kind of annoyed now in that try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even at that, it's you know, we had a winger playing, or you had a scrum half playing as a winger. Our backline was all over there, and we still. I mean, at the at the end, it was like, listen, they're probably going to hang around here for another five or six minutes. Let's just let them score the. I was actually suggesting that we like everyone stop tackling and just let them walk in, just really patronizingly. Let yeah. them score the try so we can get on with the celebration. Keep your spirits up, let's. Yeah, listen, come here. There'll be another time for this English team, you know? Yeah. Not for another 10 or 12 years, probably looking at our production line. But hey, you know, everything comes around. Sport is cyclical, England. I do think we're <laughs> going to have to wean ourselves off drama if things keep going like this. Mm. I don't know. See, this is, this is the thing, you know? This yeah. is the, the Irish rugby fan. You just, yeah. can't, uh, yeah. just can't make these people happy, can you? It's I mean, or troughs, all right. So you... I mean, Joe Schmidt has created a team that's like, it is the Borg. You know, Ireland are the Borg. They're a superhuman intelligence that grinds their opponents down. You know, there's 
the the opponent knows they're beaten before the beginning and the match plays out in this anticlimactic way and Ireland win. And Thank you appar- very much. apparently this isn't enough. <laughs> apparently just total domination from minute one to minute mm. 80 of 90, I was going to say 90, is not enough. Oh, I think it's enough for no, most, to, most to be of fair, us. I, I, there literally wasn't one thing that anyone was giving out. I mean, we weren't boring. On th- I mean, you know, the word is... is it, the word, as it's been used in the last week, is kind of reductive. You know, you're kind of shrinking arguments down to one word, uh, you know, boring or not boring. Ireland were absolutely sensational. Well, that's, that's why you've got to keep going back to that that thing that happened against France because yeah. <clears throat> I was just looking at it. I think the Sunday Times did a kind of, they, they in their sports section, they had a kind of a thing about it. Mm. I was kind of just looking at the page. I started reading at a random point in the page and it was like, how many players touch the ball? 15 and how many phases 41 I was like is this to be trying to think back to the game on Saturday that didn't happen to any of the tries then I realised oh I'm reading they're going back to that okay I agree with this but every player touched the ball that's 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 crazy I mean every everyone had a chance to make the mistake that would have killed the yeah. Grand Slam I right actually, at the beginning I every wa- single player had that chance and didn't do it yeah I watched it back today as well actually the full six there's like the full six minute YouTube clip of the 41 phases and the, the drop goal and yeah, that's it like that was the the season and we, we've all been you know here for Six Nations Championships that have ended and we spend the next four weeks going oh god like stupid mistake costs us the whole thing is a bit anticlimactic it was just like that's the that was the fuse that was lit that we saw explode on Saturday which is pretty sweet Warren Gatlin was asked about it afterwards and said congrats to Ireland you know good team <laughs> I saw this. but they have to accept that they were a bit lucky you know, that end game in Paris. I would say that is the exact opposite of luck. I mean, yeah. there wasn't one element. We actually took luck out of the game, which is pretty hard to do in rugby. Mm. Well, yeah. that's, that's, we that's shouldn't be giving the... Warren Gatlin the mention on this <laughs> yeah. podcast today. That's just taking the taking yeah. the pressure, you know. This is a team yeah. that can deal with pressure. And that, like, every, I mean, the fact that everyone was involved and over so many, so many opportunities to mess it up. Yeah. And, like, Us so mentioning a Warren Gatlin I, press that, that is a unique moment in the history of Irish team sport. I, I don't think there has been a move like it ever in Irish team sport. And what makes it so unique or certainly such a memory that will live on forever now is that we've gone on and won the Grand Slam. Mm. It's, it would have been great, but if we'd gone, and lo- gone on and had a mediocre season, it wouldn't have felt the same. Even if we'd gone on and won the Six Nations but had been beaten by England on the last Completely. day, I'm not saying people would have forgotten about it, but it, it's, just an, it's just an amazing moment that... You think of the Australia win in the World Cup in 2011 that you forget about it. Me, I don't even remember what happened in that game. Yeah, Stephen Ferris pick up their scrum half at one stage or some nonsense like this. Nobody remembers those things because of what happened next. Whereas because of everything that happened since, that it's just look. We're going to hear a bit more of the drop in a moment. Actually, it's part of our audio montage. But I just did want to mention that among the many standard images of the day on Saturday was the look of resignation on the face of Mike Brown. Poor old mm. Mike Brown after he'd been tackling the touch during the end game or near enough the end game as the realisation dawned that England were not going to be digging themselves out of the hole. The man who created that image was the same man who scored our bonus point try against Scotland, if you remember that one, that clinched the championship last week, Sean Cronin, who's going to chat to us on the show today. And we'll be getting Grand Slam analysis from the always brilliant Shane Horgan and Jerry Thornley, right after I thank everyone who's been sending in compliments for last week's interviews with Michael Checa and Vincent Brown. Those are the first two of our five big interviews that we're bringing you on the World Service to celebrate the second captain's fifth birthday. Next up tomorrow is one of the great sports writers, Paul Kimmage. Paul is in the player's chair this week with Richie Sadler. The conversation was raw, it was intense, and at times highly emotional. He'd never tell that to me. Never say that to me. He couldn't. He was an old... Never? No, no, he wouldn't. He couldn't. He couldn't say that to me. Never once. Never once. No, he couldn't say that to me. Uh, he wasn't a hugger. He couldn't do that. But I know it's a funny thing. You know, my dad. Uh, I remember him telling me a story once. He was like his own father. He was like his own father, who went to watch him. His own father, James, my grandfather, who I never knew, died before I was born. Went to watch my father race in the Cirque du Bray. Many moons ago, and my f- his, my f- my grandfather could never express any warmth or love or affection to my own father, but he was in this pub at Bray when my dad won the Circle of Bray. He went out, didn't tell him, but went out to watch him there. And I remember my dad telling me about this. Well, it was obvious that 
his father was just thrilled because he got up the next day and he washed his bike for him and that was his way of expressing it and my dad would be exactly the same with me he'd, he would get up I'd get up the next day and he'd have washed my bike for me but I wouldn't have been able to tell me but I know I know he was proud and I know uh, yeah he, he supported me all the years yeah I really miss him Paul Kimmich in the player's chair comes highly recommended that is out tomorrow so if you sign up now you will be starting your days as a world service member with a bang membership costs only a fiver a month and it's very easy to sign up secondcaptains.com is the place to do it I believe we have our Grand Slam audio bed ready to go and the final score is Ireland 24 England 15 and we all raise a glass to Ireland of Ireland and once again they're looking for a try and the cuts from half time and Stockdale going for it and he's very well have got it and completes a long pass it's intercepted and that will be game set and match as Jacob Stockdale breaks Welsh hearts with an interception try Surtout pas notre pied hors jeu, pas hors jeu, pas hors jeu tant qu'ils sont en l'encet du terrain mais pas hors jeu Attention le drop, il arrive Le drop de Jonathan Sexton yeah, you called the count. It was always going to be difficult to beat week one and Le Drop for audio drama, so it turned out. But along with Michael Corcoran calling the pivotal moment of the whole campaign at the Stade de France, you also heard BBC Radio Wales commentary of the crucial Stockdale try. That was the one that killed off the Welsh comeback and ITV's coverage of last Saturday's bit of genius from Jacob Stockdale again to put us almost out of sight at the end of the first half and on our way to a Grand Slam. And first up was the famous voice of Five Live commentator Ian Robertson and his final comments on Ireland-England in his last ever Six Nations commentary after 46 years in the box for the BBC. So well done to him on that (laughs) pretty staggering achievement. We are joined on the show now by Grand Slam champion Sean Cronin. Sean, congratulations. (laughs) Thanks very much. Good feeling. Good feeling. Not only did you guys do it in Twickenham, you did it in such style as well. I mean, everybody's been commenting over the last 24, 48 hours about the clinical nature of the performance. I'd say that must give you a lot of pride that you could pull that off. I mean, obviously you were confident, but to pull off a performance like that, make it look like there was no pressure on the game, and clearly it was a different game to to, to a standard match. Yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of crazy watching because the lads just looked, like you said, they looked so clinical. They did everything to the T. Uh, you know, everything flowed real well in the day, and you could just see lads were just on the same on the same page, and, and you could see it in the performance. You know, I don't think I'd say that we were that's not under any pressure. It was far from it because the lads soaked up huge amounts of pressure, and you know it was just clinical from the lads. Uh, some, 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 uh, obviously some moves tied off for us on the day, and you know just so happy to to, to see the things go so well for us. Yeah, when when I use the term pressure, I, I more meant the idea of pressure around the game. There was a huge pressure to perform, to to have to go to Twickenham of all places to win a Six Nations, and you guys handle that really well. How did, how did you psychologically during the week did you have to speak about? You've been in so many of them now, I suppose, Sean. But did you have to address the size of the occasion? Um, well, t- from a personal point of view, you know, I, I don't think I've been as nervous leading into a game. I've been involved in some big games down through the years, but everyone just knew that these opportunities don't come around very often. And, uh, yeah, there was huge pressure. There was big hype. And, and, and I just don't think lads, I think they just were so focused on, on the game and, and, what, and what they needed to do that uh, I think that that's how we dealt with the pressure so well. Sean, you've been involved in all 15 games of the three championships that Joe Schmidt has won. Why were you more nervous for this one? Was it just the word Grand Slam, the concept of a Grand Slam, the fact that it's so rare? Yeah, yeah, you know, and and you're looking around the squad, and obviously Robin, Robin, Rory were the only lads in the squad with, with a Grand Slam medal in their pocket. So there was a lot of guys there hungry for that bit of success as well. And 
you know, from a personal point of view as well. I just tried to, I suppose, cancel out all the hype and stuff that was going on um, outside of the camp and just, um, you know, just didn't try and get get myself prepped as well as I could. And the lads, I think, were the same, just to to give the, the, the game the best lash that they could. The highlight of your performance that we remember, Sean, was the try-saving tackle on Mike Brown. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch any any of the TV coverage back yet, but there's a lovely lingering camera shot on Mike Brown sitting there forlornly for what seemed like about 30 seconds afterwards. You don't have to talk about how much glee that that might possibly give you, but we, certainly all Irish fans enjoyed that moment. Did you did you know you were going to be able to make the tackle? Was it a, was it, was it were you pretty comfortable with it? Yeah, well, this, yeah, I know. It's just the way it kind of fell that they broke back down the blind and they actually had a runner coming short, so I just had to read the ball. And once the ball had went outside the first man, I just I, I put the head down and hopefully he didn't. I, I, if I maybe if he'd stepped me back on the inside, I could have been in trouble. But he put his he put his ears down and tried to go. So when I just got a good connection on him and I suppose no better man to drive out into touch. I think he looked a bit <laughs> he looked a bit despondent afterwards. But uh, in fairness to me, actually came up to me afterwards and said, you know, great hit. So. Um, you know, he's not that bad of a guy off the pitch. Ah, no, I'm sure he's not. Just a, a slightly <laughs> a slightly narky presence uh, on the pitch. But th- those are my words, Sean. We don't want to get you in trouble at this stage of the season. And it's been an amazing season for you, like a real turnaround. You weren't involved in November. To get back and to make the sort of impacts that you've made, in uh, particularly in the last couple of games, you must be thrilled. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, I had a couple of injuries last season, my hamstring and my neck, and then I came back and I didn't really get I didn't hit the ground running. I was a bit, I probably wasn't fit enough. And, um, you know, being left out in November probably gave me the, the kick off the back that I needed to, to kind of give me that hunger again to, you know, you know, I suppose you only miss stuff when you're not involved and, and I, miss, I miss being involved in, in November. So, you know, it's a good little pat in the back to get me going again and uh, just absolutely thrilled to, to, to have got back into the squad. You know, so competitive with you know, the competition around the provinces at the moment. So, um, from a personal point of view, it was great to get back in and, you know, once you're in there, just try and keep the head in the door. Looking in at it, Sean, I don't think I've ever seen an Irish squad deal so well with injuries, but also how integrated uh, the team was with subs coming on and how the, the standard never dropped. In fact, the likes of yourself and Jack McGrath and Jordy Murphy, Larmer, I don't know whether it was the coaching or confidence or what it was just for the team to keep the standard up no matter what was thrown at it over the course of five games. I can't remember Ireland ever doing that before. What, what do you think was the difference in that situation? Well, I suppose, you know, uh, like you said with the injury, you know, we lost Robbie Henshaw, was, was, you know, absolutely huge for us. Then Chris Farrell came in and he was huge as well. And then he got injured. And then you have a, a player of the calibre, Gary Ringrose, to come in and step in. And, you know, how well did he do? It was, you know, it was incredible. Um and I suppose then the fact that it's just there's such good clarity that that's what's given down from the coaches to the players that whoever comes in and out, you know, they know what's expected of them. So I suppose that's how you deal with injuries. That you, you know, we, like I said, with the strength and depth around the provinces, that there's guys there that are willing to come in, and we have the quality in Ireland to, to deal to, to deal with a few injuries like that. And it was fantastic to see as well that. Like you said about the subs coming on and adding value, you know, Jordy was Jordy was fantastic last week when he came on against Scotland and Joey and Jordan Lammer. Yeah, it's 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 incredible and probably the wrong side of thirty now to be dealing with those that uh, they're <laughs> you know that their careers in, in front of them. Yeah, the confidence, the confidence that these guys, the young guys in particular, seem to be bringing to the table is unbelievable, Sean. But we don't want to forget your your role in the win over Scotland because I mentioned the tackle against tackle on Mike Brown, but let's not forget this brilliant moment that effectively won us the Six Nations Championship. Ireland currently five points ahead of England in the table. This is the importance of the moment right now. Gathered in by Stander initially and now the drive comes on. They're over the line and they scored and it's Sean Cronin and Ireland are saying, England what can you do about this? Yeah, that was a bonus point try, all right, the one the Six Nations and I have to say the celebration, I'm just looking at it again here, Sean. I don't know exactly, it seems a little bit like the Eric Cantona celebration against Sunderland many years ago. I don't know if you remember, he scored a chipped goal and then puffed the chest out and just walked around as though he owned the place. What was going on there? No, I, I, I because when I got up off the ground, I turned around and Wayne, I thought Wayne Barnes was going back to the, to, to the line-out mark. I thought he'd given a penalty against Scotland. And I was kind of pointing at the ground to say uh, I got the ball down. Uh, so, okay, so you, you, you didn't realise you'd scored it right. 
Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't. It wasn't. I thought you were. It was a Balchi celebration. It was actually not a celebration. You weren't. You were, you just thought it hadn't been given yet. Yeah, it was probably a bit of both. It was probably a bit of both. <laughs> uh, lovely to see. It seemed like at Twickenham on Saturday, because the English fans cleared out, there seemed to be a lot of nice moments where you guys got to enjoy a bit of time. You could pick out the Irish people in the crowd, your friends and your family. Personally, did you get to see anyone straight after the game on the Twickenham pitch? Yeah, my 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 wife and. Um, my wife and my parents and, and my, my father-in-law were there. So, um, you know, that was fantastic. I think I saw a small tear in the old fella's eye um, after the game. And uh, they, were, they, they were just chuffed because obviously a huge part of it as well. They, you know, they follow me and, and my brothers everywhere as well. So my parents and my family. So it was, you know, fantastic. And, and uh, you know, they're special days. And, and, you know, I really, really enjoyed it. And, and I think that they enjoyed themselves as well. The young lads didn't make the trip? Your, your sons? No, no, no. They were at home with uh, Granny. Granny was looking after them um, back in Ireland. They're just a small but too young. But uh, they're, 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 they had their Irish jerseys on. And um, yeah, they're waiting for me now to get home. So oh, brilliant. I'm sure it'll be interesting enough when I get home later on. Oh, excellent. Listen, we don't want to keep you too long. Just one final question. Um, we do know that uh, our sports minister, Shane Ross, was there to greet the team when you guys got home. Did you speak to Shane Ross and did he get your name right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, uh, I, well, I didn't, so I just I shook hands with the with the minister and then, uh, yeah, I wasn't, uh, I don't think I was important enough to be getting into the photo. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think it was just Rob and Johnny that he wanted to get his photo with, but... Uh, yeah, or Dave he, and Johnny, um, as, as it may have been. Someone, yeah. There's rumours going around that he, he, uh, he did that deliberately so that there'd be, you know, a bit of traction on, online, but... Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know whether to believe that story. No, you're seriously giving him the benefit of the doubt there. I think. Listen, Sean, we'll leave it go, leave it go there, and best of luck. And hopefully, the your sons enjoy the victory as much as you have. Congratulations! Thanks very much for talking to us. Cheers, lad. Thank you. He's just a crying big baby. But you cannot call a player a baby. Where do you think you got it all wrong today? Which is the game you wanted a victory boy? Didn't have a weapon. Well, it's just uh, the nervousness. You look frustrated on the Coach. pitch. Which is the game you wanted a victory boy? Didn't have a weapon. You wanted victory. Well, I wanted victory. Which is the game you wanted a victory boy? Didn't have a weapon. Where do you think you got it all wrong today? against them in the premiership and we never said they are baby. It's just a crying big baby. You cannot call a player a baby. That's very interesting that Sean, not surprising that Sean said how that he was more nervous than he's ever been for a game but it's interesting because he had to then sit on the bench until he inevitably got called out to do a very specific job. Yeah. It's a little bit different from the guys who get straight out there and put in a couple of big hits. And it struck me watching Jack McGrath, who was the most emotional of all the players pre-match. Similarly, he had to go and sit down beside mm. Sean Cronin. Uh, something I didn't ask him there. We have actually talked to Sean Cronin about that in the past. I didn't want to harp on too much about this idea that he, he comes on as, as a mm. sub. I know he wants to start these games, but he whatever, whatever way he does it, he comes on and he always has an impact and he helps us to win. He has match-winning moments and match-saving moments. Uh, He's mastered the moments. art of it. Like He physically is perfectly suited to being a sub-hooker in his pace and power and his decision-making and line-taking. Too and perfectly suited, though. Do you, know, you know what I mean? Like he'd, yes. love to, he'd love yeah. to start, well, he, he, things have changed. He could and, easily and the, start and, and yeah. do just a job. He could, he could, But yeah. certainly in the, minds of, in the mind of Joe Schmidt and a lot of coaches... He's just too perfect for that role to not use him yeah. in that way. But then we don't take enough account of the fact that he's mentally suited to it as well. There's loads of players who come on and are a bit scrambled or get too tense or don't read the game well, whereas he comes on and he knows exactly what he should do, not just physically but mentally. Nice yeah. guy as well. Yeah, and the, the mental thing is, is so uh, important as well because there, there are many rules on a rugby team uh, and a lot of it you know, is you just make yourself involved. Like You just get into the game somehow hit a ruck or two but with him it's always okay I'm playing the last 20 minutes at some stage in these 20 minutes if the game is a one score game we're going to have a line out 
either very close to the opposition line or very close to our own line. And that's the game. You know, like at some, at some stage, if we're four points down, we're going to kick to the corner. And the whole idea of kicking to the corner is that I have to hit my man. And the lineout is, you know, more complicated than that. But at the same time, you're throwing the ball in. It's down to you. So it's not even a case of, okay, once I'm on the field, I'll be okay. That moment is going to more than likely happen once, maybe twice in the game. Mm. Along with place kicking, it's one of those yeah. isolated moments. It's a set piece in your head. Like it's the 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 golfer standing over a putt. You know, the the test is no longer am I physically capable of doing this. The test is am I mentally capable of carrying out this physical act. And Sean Cronin is, we all know, a centre in a hooker's body. A little bit like Ty Furlong. <laughs> they, those two could actually play centre together. I would say do a pretty decent job. I'd love to see it. I would. I would pay a lot of money to Ireland see those two Ireland have played five centre. nations games with a worse centre partnership. <laughs> That's, than <Ty> really <laughs> That's probably true. More player reaction coming up during the week on the World Service. Going to chat to Jonathan Sexton on the show. But Shane and Jerry are ready to go right now. Shane, have you come down off cloud nine since Saturday? No, still on top of it. I'm going to be there for a while. I'm happy to be. Yeah, I think we all are happy to be there for the time being. Quite a thrill, I would, I would say, to attend uh, an occasion like that, Jerry. Yeah, hugely. As I was writing inside his paper, it's uh, probably the worst place to lose, but the best place to win, to reckon there's something very special about it. And uh, it's only really the, when Ireland win a match, you, really, you fully appreciate how many fans are there from Ireland. And there must have been at least three times the official allocation of 5,000, however they got their tickets, at least 15,000, maybe more. And the English fans had vacated the presence, the, the, the place and left it all to the <laughs> Irish. And uh, um, great to see this group of players do it. They deserve it fully, which is very satisfying. So we've gone to Twickenham and picked apart an England team to win a Grand Slam, Shane. Of all the joyous aspects of this achievement, what are you most happy about now a couple of days later looking back at it at all? Um, I, the way they played... Uh, the ambition they played with, and we spoke about it all the way through the Six Nations, the ambition, the innovation, um, you know, they stood up to the might of what England tried to do. You know, they came in with a reduced game plan, definitely thinking that they were going to try and bully us, um, and that was never going to be uh, the case. We stood up to them physically, and then we played on a different level than they, I think, were capable of. Um, it's so It was brilliant for, for the players to play at that level, and know how you know how highly they can f- perform it bodes well for the future but also i think it cemented this group of players that not you know the whole nation doesn't know these group of players or they didn't up until saturday but they know them now they know the individual stories and i'm i'm more in love with this team than i was you know this team i respected and i thought were professional but after that performance they're a kind of team you can love and there was these little stories that were going on throughout the stadium afterwards with people meeting their parents and their um, partners and wives and and uh, friends and family and um, it was it was incredible and i love the fact that it had a balance between you know older players who were who were um, con- i know concerned about never having a grand slam on their cv and younger players who almost expect um, you know, victories and success and expect this level of, uh, of uh, performance. So um, it, everything combined to a team that you know, were quite really joyous on Saturday watching them and a team that you, know, you don't want to talk too much about what goes on in the future, but you know, what, what can these guys achieve? The age of them, what can they do? Anything. Yeah, Shane, even in the analysis on TV3 afterwards and reading the Sunday papers, I don't think an Irish team has ever won something so big and the theme of the analysis being so much about the future and youth. And you even talked there about, say, in 2009, we knew these players so well in 2009. With Munster and Leinster, there'd been all that romance and drama and we just knew them inside out. We don't really know a lot of these players. We haven't even heard James Ryan speak, Burley. We don't know Dan Levy or Larmer. We just know them as players, but we haven't gone through any sort of a journey with them. We just It's more of a cold clinical analysis of them purely on the field. Yeah, and um, you're right. John Ryan's, uh, um, uh, James Ryan's the perfect example of that. He could walk down the street in Dublin. He worked down a Collins Street tomorrow. And I, you know, the amount of people that would know him, I'd say would be pretty limited. You know, I'd probably a few more know him this week than last week. And he may get he may get used to to the whole nation knowing him, but um, it's going to take a while for that to happen. And uh, you're right, we were talking about the potential of the team and and where they could go. And I, we wanted to get the balance on that right because you don't want to gloss over that moment and what these players have achieved right now. But 
you know, you, you do look at the age profile of these these fellas, and you know the, the, how incredibly young they are, and the and the balance and the mix that just works perfectly for the team at the moment. And you know that will be in re- reinforced around the clubs and the schools uh, and the pitches of the country over the next you know years to come. Yeah, Jerry, I don't know about for you, but for me, this was like a slow burning satisfaction of a Grand Slam versus 2009, which was just this awesome relief of decades of not quite getting over the line. Whereas two days later, it feels nearly more satisfying than it did immediately after the game. That's part of how dominant Ireland were in the performance, and it just felt one from half time. But there's kind of more a sense of hope, the start of a journey, as opposed to, wow, these guys finally did it, and thank God for them, which is what we felt in 2009. Yeah, and 2009 were, as Les Kiss called them, a cardiac team right up to the end. So it was very dramatic. It was even a bare-knuckle ride in Murrayfield in the penultimate leg. And then, of course, there was that endgame drama in the Millennium Stadium, which I suppose made it more of a a grand finale to a grand slam. Um, More exciting, more dramatic. And eight of that team are the top eight most capped players in the history of Irish rugby. Shane's right. You know, they'd been on a journey. Brian just in his 10th season playing for Ireland. A lot of them had been there for quite a while and Leinster had never won a Heineken Cup at that point. Munster had won a couple and had been knocking on the door for years. So we wondered if Paul O'Connell and Brian Riscoll ever would and there was just as much a sense of relief as anything that they had um, finally scaled the mountaintop. This is different. Um, seven of this 23 are Six Nations rookies to all intents and purposes. Dan Levy did come on as a sub in the game 12 months ago in the last weekend against England. But to all intents and purposes, he and six others are in their rookie Six Nations campaign. And you're right, they're relatively unknown. They're so bloody good, they almost took the, it was almost an anticlimax. It was just a bloodless coup in, in Saturday in some respects. They led from the fifth minute. There were two scores clear from the 24th minute. It was the biggest Irish win in Twickenham since 1964. Ireland aren't meant to win in Twickenham like that. It's meant to be a one-score nail-biter. They mm. got rid of the drama early on, didn't they? It was against France. That's, you know... When they produce a DVD of this Grand Slam, that's going to hold um, centre stage, that 41-phase drive. Had Anthony Bello kicked the penalty, would Ireland's slam ambitions have been derailed in, in weekend one? That shows you how, indeed, the fine margins are in the Six Nations. And then, I think, whatever when, they, when you talk to them in years to come, they'll all say, I'm sure, that what they got from that 41-phase drive for Johnny Sexton to land that magnificent drop goal in Powers was much more than a win. I think that's where all the momentum and self-belief in each other came from. I think I could only imagine the feel-good factor in the build-up to the game against Italy from there on. And you know they've been they've been very very convincing winners. Unlike 09, they apart from that one come to come back in that last eight minutes against France, they were briefly behind in the first half against Scotland and briefly behind the first half against Wales. In all of the matches, they led all the way. I mean, quite staggering. They've been over 300 minutes, 320 odd minutes in front in their five games. They've just been really ruthlessly efficient. They're just. Everything clicks. Every, all the boxes tick. All the all the all the foundations are in place. They've got an amazing coaching ticket that you probably wouldn't swap for any other coaching ticket in the world. So they've got a, a, an ultra reliable scrum, an ultra reliable lineout, an ultra reliable mall. Um, the only thing that maybe we've had issues with has been their defence, which rather gives the lie to the notion that they're they've been boring to watch because I think that's added to the excitement. But they've been the most prolific try scoring team Ireland has ever produced. Twenty tries in five games. They've been really clinical in taking their opportunities as they were again last Saturday. They've just had a machine-like efficiency. And I think that's why it, you know, as Ron O'Gara said, they eat the pack for dinner and it was almost an anti-climax. It felt so strange that it was so easy in the end, ultimately. I'm sure it didn't feel easy on the pitch for the players, but it they, it, it felt convincing. It, I genuinely never was in any doubt that Ireland were going to win that much. I'm not, just yeah, Jerry. That. I'm not just saying that after the event. I actually genuinely never thought they were going to lose that game. Jerry, they won at a counter. They won it at a counter. <laughs> they really did. And in the way of a Cheltenham week, that's what it felt like um, from the you know opening moment. And, and you know what? They actually won this um, um, championship and Grand Slam at a counter as well. And you're, you know, I know there was the last moment uh, in in Paris, and the in, which will go down in folklore as a drop goal. But they were very comfortable for the entire game until the bit of Teddy Tama magic. And mm-hmm. then they were in control as well. You know, they went back into it. It was a different type of control. But you, know, you, don't, you don't go 42 phases and score a drop goal without a, a modicum of control is what they did. And then every other game was a counter. Like, Italy was easy for them. Um, 
the I thought the um, the Welsh game there was a challenge which they met you know impeccably and and again it was a tactical um, nous of of the game plan that was put out by Joe Smith worked against them uh, and really gave Gatlin a lesson and he has been the standout coach. Uh, in this championship by a mile. He's deconstructed every single coach that he's played against. Scotland was an incredibly comfortable game against a side with a very big reputation. And then yesterday, or sorry, on, on, on Saturday, was maybe the easiest of the lot. It was, it was never in doubt. Uh, and it was, it was very telling. There was a picture that, uh, of, of Joe Smith at 51 minutes uh, we won a scrum. And I've never seen Joe like this before, aside from maybe at the end of a game. And I mean, all the time I've been watching him, the time that I've, I've played under him, as he's been our, uh, my coach with Leinster, and then uh, when he's taken over with Ireland, um, 51 minutes into the game, he's smiling and joking in the box, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, um, in the coach's box. And that just showed where how comfortable he felt they were. And... You know, if you look at the tries that Ireland succeeded afterwards and the position that they got into and giving away, you know, try um, um, very, very late on the game, you know, we had shipped some serious injuries as well. And then all of a sudden, Larmer was being asked to do something that I don't know if, if he's ever done at senior level before. And he was playing an inside centre at one point. We had a, a nine on the wing and England started to move the, bit, the ball a bit wider. But before that, we were completely uncomfortable in defence. And one of the reasons was we had Conor O'Shea in the, offense, in the offensive line. We didn't have him as a sweeper. Again, something that Joe Smith you know, maybe took a gamble on, but it worked for him. Um, something that the English team couldn't address, aside from uh, the, the one try that they scored. Um, it was an absolute counter. Yeah, Conor Murray, you said Conor O'Shea there. Conor Murray, I Sorry. assume we're talking about there. <laughs> that, that would have been a ball from the blue from he's checking. Got, listen, he, from, Conor's uh, got Schmidt. bigger problems to worry about than me <laughs> quoting his name. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. I don't know if you got a chance yet to listen to our Michael Check interview from Friday, Shane. You're pretty busy preparing for the game. But there was an interesting moment in that where Simon mentioned that Ireland are probably the best team in the Six Nations. And Check had pulled him up and said, mate, You've won the Six Nations with a game to spare. You are the best team in the Six Nations. We were talking about this whole idea of confidence and you know how maybe Irish people think a little bit differently, aren't as brazen, aren't as brash as, as Australians and others sometimes. But this current team have a bunch of players in it that have never lost a game for Ireland. James Ryan has never lost a game of professional rugby <laughs> at senior level. <laughs> That's ridiculous. You know, these guys, the, the, you, yeah. you, you, that, the belief that they've brought, I presume for the senior players, the likes of Rob Carney who looks revitalised and, and all these other guys who've been the spine of the team, they must feed off that as well. That must bring something, that, that, that idea that these young lads uh, are not afraid and are not afraid of being confident. There's a, there's a couple of things there. One... Um, it reminds me of when we won, and Leinster won the first Heineken Cup in 2009. There was a group of players that, uh, you know, older players had been trying for a very long time and not succeeding. And um, just in the year before that, or uh, maybe 18 months, a new group, a new wave of incredibly um, uh, confident and skillful and energetic young players came in. And there were Luke Fitzgerald and there was uh, uh, Rob Carney. Um, I think um, Keen Healy was coming in, and you know, just guys who were and Johnny Sexton, of course, that were um, confident in their own ability. Had never really um, tasted the level of failure that that we had. They'd be always been successful playing in the, in whatever schools or, or or youth teams they were playing at, and whether it be underage internationals. And uh, they didn't have the baggage w- with them. They had no weight that that um, of, of history to hold them down, and they they revitalised. Um, the entire squad, and it was a, you know it was a big had a big influence on what we were doing. Now this Irish team were were already successful, and they have you know senior players who have had loads of success. But that input of of um, exuberance of of expectation, you know, there's three of those players in Stockdale, Ryan and Porter got to a World Cup final, had beaten New Zealand on the way to it, um, at under 20 level. They only know success. And they only know how to, you know, to be dying. Their expectation is that they dine from the top table. And long may that continue. The other part of this is how we analyse the team and how we analyse um, the opposition. And, you know, I, I think it was, you know, we looked at this um, during the week. And I, I was kind of convinced that this was going to be a very, very tight game. And it was going to be, uh, I was really worried about England um, beating Ireland. But, you know, if you look back at it more dispassionately, you go, this is England team 
um, that had made, I think, eight changes or so. There was no cohesion whatsoever. They had no form. Uh, the Irish team have been uh, confident, controlled, professional, um, right the way through the, the championship. And I think, you know, as, as professional observers, we actually have to look at things a little differently because we used to have it with France. We used to say, oh, listen, the, the, you know, the, the French team will, will um, deliver based on what we thought French teams should deliver. Um, and I think it's it's a similar, you know, for England, we're, we're used to England, you know, delivering uh, because of a history. But it's not so maybe what, so much what they deliver, but it's our expectation that maybe the, you know, the, the favourites tag doesn't sit too well with Ireland or, you know, we're going, we're, we don't trust the players that we have fully. And I think we have to move beyond that as analysts as well, because they've moved beyond it as players. Jerry, just talking about... Um the England game specifically, and the fact that our away form now is almost as good as our home form. There's very little discrepancy between the two. And this season, we've talked less about emotion and passion than in any other Irish season I can ever remember. And it's something we've been trying to eliminate from our game for a long time. But I think we're in new territory here. And we did have passion in Twickenham, and that was needed at certain times in defence, particularly, say, at the start of the second half. But overall, we only really needed to go to that sort of emotional well once in the season, which is very manageable and sustainable. But against Scotland, Wales and France and Italy, we didn't really need to do that. So we kind of have this um, extra layer to us that we're, we're consistent from game to game, which is quite new. We're consistent across the season, summer tours, November, Six Nations, but also within games for 80 minutes now, I, it's, it is partly this group of players, but also just what Joe has built, that I really think it's new territory that we, across the season, from season to season, but then also within games for 80 minutes, the concentration doesn't seem to slip. And away and home form is the same. We deal with injuries really well. We're just, we're ticking off all the boxes of the things in our history that held us back. Yeah, it's, it's a new Ireland. It's a new era. It's a different type of um, winning Irish formula. Um, it's based on uber efficiency. It's based across the squad, everybody knowing their roles um, and everybody trusting each other and knowing exactly what's required of them. Like I said, in all the set pieces, not just that the set pieces though, but you think of their breakdown work. It's the most efficient breakdown work of any team in the tournament by distance. You look at the way England rocked in the two games where they lost um, coming into this match and the way they under-resources, and that just wouldn't, just, just that's just a non-negotiable for this Irish team. Um, any team really coached by Joe Schmidt, the first two in, just complete, do exactly what they do. And if you ask opposition players or opposition coaches, what is it about Ireland? What is it that's something about It's the way they retain possession. And um, when all else fails, they can just slip back into that mode, as they did in Paris, and that, that control that Shane talks about. And so I think that efficiency... Um, is the bedrock of their performance more than anything else. And it, it's, just, it's, it's something they just take into every game. And it means that if Josh van der Fleer gets injured, Dan Levy slips in to replace him in the first half. If it's, you know, Robbie Henshaw gets injured, Chris Farrell comes in. If Chris Farrell comes in, Gary Ringrose comes in. You know, it, it doesn't seem to matter. Even, you know, you think the, the, the way that team finished, it finished with um, a 21-year-old out half and a 23-year-old inside centre and a 21-year-old outside centre mm. who'd never played outside centre all season and hadn't even run there in training, yeah. according to Joe Schmidt, yeah. and a scrum half on the right wing. But there's just this level of efficiency that goes through them. And you're right. I mean, for them to win in Paris and London, and ultimately it quite convincingly, put this into historical context, no Irish team had won away to France and England in the same year since 1972 and had only been done twice before in history. And whatever about Paris on Saturday, they made those look relatively easy. So I think, yeah, they're 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 handling the mantle of favoritism, um, very very convincingly. I they actually were the bet of the season at even money to win that game on Saturday. I rang Paddy Paris half an hour before the before the kick off, and I just you know lumped in in it because I just felt so confident in this uber efficient machine. And I also felt, as I said last week, that they would revel in the occasion. They would really really go for it because they've got the big game hunters, you know. They've got the best halfback pairing, or certainly as good as any other pairing in the world, with the possible exception of Aaron Smith and Bowden Barrett. And they proved that in the Lions Test series, Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton. And you know they control tempo of games. I mean, the, the first quarter might have seemed a little bit, dare one say it, boring. But it was the way they quieted the crowd away from home 
is in Twickenham. That first 20 minutes was quite extraordinary. It was it sounded beautiful. You could almost hear a pin drop at one point, and then the the Irish fans started up the fields of Athen Rye about 12 minutes in just to break the silence. That's how in control Ireland the Irish team were at that point. So home or away, it didn't matter. And I think actually they they just they were going to go for it. They're going to relish the occasion, go after it, and. Uh, it's just scary to think what they might now achieve on the back of that because they've got that in their locker. I don't feel for any moment that even the more experienced players in the team, the Sexton's, the Murrays and the Roy Bests, whatever, are remotely sated yet. This is, this is a machine that wants to move on inexorably. Jerry, I, I, was, I was shocked by how incredibly physical they were. Um, mm. even, even in the last 10, 15 minutes, um, from people you wouldn't necessarily expect it, I saw um, Larmer flying into contact um, Connor Murray stripping the ball you know, a couple of times, very, very aggressive. Gary Ringrose, right Gary yeah. Ringrose doing the same. He's, yeah. he, he's been magnificent, and I think he's been a huge difference uh, over the last um, couple of games. But mm-hmm. the the level of we, we kind of we, again we sometimes underestimate ourselves. We say, oh, a big French pack or this big English pack, you know, we got to match them physically. I think maybe we're beyond that now. Um, our players are incredibly physical, incredibly aggressive. Um, they don't get bullied by anyone. And then when you connect that to um, the tactical and technical aspects that the players and the coaching staff have, it's really formidable. Yeah, yeah and it's their work rate, Shane, as well. Like, you look at the, some of their numbers. CJ Stander regularly makes now over 20 carries a game, and he's around about 15 tackles per match. I thought it was almost fitting that he was actually the on-field captain at the end. When you think that Ireland had lost... Sean O'Brien and Jamie Hees up through the tournament and both have captained Ireland in the past. The, the, the captain himself, Rory Best, had been replaced and both vice-captains, Johnny Sexton and Peter Mahoney, had gone off. All that leadership gone and then quietly, officially just trundle along. It doesn't, doesn't even matter who's captain. You know I mean, CJ Stand was actually the captain on the pitch at the end game and there's something apt in that because his work rate is just typical of what this team is about. Their honesty of effort and their work rate, their numbers, they, the, what they contribute selflessly. You know where it's all coming from. It's got, yeah. It emanates from that Monday morning review. Um, and what they might not be doing or doing off the ball, so they all work. They just all work. It's a work rate. I mean, that was one thing I think you could say you could compare with 2009. There was a savage work rate amongst that tight five, and uh, I think it's the same with this team. Yeah, they were they were first to every ball, every loose ball, and I know that's one of their mantras. Um, you know, Keith Earls, in particular, a couple of times getting down so quickly. And there was another occasion, James Ryan, I remember him going down and, and in one movement picking the ball up off the ground and presenting it perfectly uh, back for Conor Murray. And That's that, right, Ian Henderson latching on to that knock-on by uh, some of the English player member. Yeah, yeah, uh, George Cruz. Like you know, Henderson they, almost got caught on the bounce. Yeah, and they say, oh, we, we, you know, Ireland got the bounce of the ball. They got the bounce of the ball because they were first to the bounce of the ball. And it, almost every occasion, and when you have hunger uh, like that, it, it generally gets rewarded. But there was that side of the game, and then there was the, the how comfortable and relaxed they were. This was the biggest game any of these players had ever played before, bar none. Rob, Hen- Rob uh, Carney, perhaps, because he, he played in the Grand Slam decider before. But, you know, he's, he's got older and there's another pressure that comes with that. And he, he'll, he'll want to have you know, succeeded uh, on this occasion as well. But, so it's the biggest game they're all playing. And I couldn't believe how relaxed they, they seemed and how non-stressed they were. And I, I said beforehand it, um, that it was important and the best teams, they play like it means nothing when it means everything. And th- that's what it felt like in terms of their looseness and their, their ability to transfer the ball. And you know, very early in that game, there was a, I think there was a, a rook very deep uh, in their own 22 in the right-hand side. And they shifted it right across the back line in their 22. Now, it, you know, they didn't get around the corner, but I just thought, Actually, these guys don't care what time in the game it is, what position on the field it is, or who their opposition are. If, they're, if they think it's the right thing to do, they'll do it. And that's the, that is the key element that I wanted to see from this team. So the movement to, to making the right decision no matter what. Uh, no matter what position it is, what time, or, or who the opposition is. And I, if they can continue on that, I, I think they've, they've hit something now. they can continue on with this, then you know, there is no limit to what this, this team can achieve. Shane, we're now number two in the world, and that feels accurate and appropriate for what the team have done. And we're, I think, undoubtedly the best breakdown team in the world, even better than New Zealand. Um, the ability to hold on to possession and the knock-on effects of that, I think, have a psychology of their own because the opposition coaches and opposition players know in advance that 
they're not going to have the ball for very long and they're going to need to try things in games when they have possession uh, that they're not necessarily all that comfortable with. I saw We saw that from Wales and England, particularly in the Six Nations, where they know if they lose the ball again, Ireland might have it for another 10 minutes. So they need to just reach beyond themselves a little bit. And the reputation of our coach, Joe Schmidt, but also now our team and holding on to the ball and our steadiness there, it's kind of having these knock-on effects on opposition. Yeah, and it's not just the Northern Hemisphere phenomenon now as well. Uh, I'm, I'm, we're going to see it. It's a great tour for Ireland uh, in the summer against Australia. Um, a key for them to move their game on because um, you know Michael Checa won't be uh, overawed by you know, playing an Irish team or, or coaching against uh, Joe Smith, but he'll be very, very aware of their qualities. Um, and he will, you know, he will be ambitious in a way that um, that you know, the other teams in the Six Nations haven't quite been, or certainly not for long periods. And that will that will challenge Ireland, and it will create a new skill set for them. I think uh, I have no doubt that they're capable of of you know winning a, a series in 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 Australia, and uh, never mind just a test. But they will have to move their game on, and and they interestingly and. Um, and importantly, they did move their game on in this series. Uh, so there's a there was a difference in their outlook from um, from the from up to the Scottish game, and then during the Scottish game and the England game, their their, their spacing was much better. I saw you know their their uh, props and in, in in particular Ty Furlong talking and communicating as much as I've ever seen them. They had Connor Murray in the defensive line, which means, yes, there's an opportunity for a chip over the top, but these are skills that aren't executed that well by opposition. It's a calculated risk. And also, when you have uh, um, Rob Carney playing a fullback, he closes that um, uh, gap between where his position and, and the chip over the top really quickly. And uh, But we have softened on the outside shoulder, uh, on, the, on the outside edge, and... We are able to do that because um, we've had uh, Gary Ringrose playing there, who is a exceptionally good defender, an exceptionally good defender. So um, all that you know, that ability to move your game on and have slightly different defensive patterns and, and not put as much decision-making um, on the wings and forcing them to come up with as much aggression, that will get in the mind of oppositions as well. As uh, you say, Simon, they will be thinking about the different challenges that Ireland face and the way they can mix up or, or the, um, pr- uh, present and the way that they can mix up their game. And that makes things very difficult. And, and you're right as well about the rooking. I think New Zealand rooking is, you know, you know was probably the, um, the, the level that everybody was trying to get to. You know, I think Ireland uh, are not far off that level. Um, it's the most, having played New Zealand a number of times, it's the most aggressive rooking I've ever been subjected to. You didn't even get a look at the ball before you were cleaned out of, out of it. And uh, you were hit hard every single time and you felt it. And the idea of getting into position uh, to try and steal a ball, you knew that um, you, there was a physical price to pay for that. And I think Ireland are now making opposition teams pay a physical price for it as well. And having spoken to Shane Jennings um, quite a bit, and he's done some amazing work over the last uh, number of weeks um, with our coverage in TV3, about um, what makes Ireland so good and, and why they're rooking so efficiently and what the opposition teams are doing wrong. It's, you know, this is it's exact science, you know, and it's not just the first guy in, but of course it's, you know, he's the main one, but it's the, the other tackler who's involved, where they're putting their body, where their body, uh, uh, how they're sort of using the dark arts to, to, to uh, affect the opposition coming in. And the, level, the, the body height of all the Irish players, um, it's very, very significant. And you're right, it's a cornerstone for their success. Shane, forget about rooking for a second. The future of rugby is all about 20-stone props with the silky hands of an out-half. Uh, you wrote about Tyg Furlong in your preview piece before the tournament started and about his passing ability and the extra dimension he can bring to the Irish attack that obviously no other prop can come up with for any of the other teams in the Six Nations. You must have greatly enjoyed the fact that came to fruition on the biggest day. Well, it wasn't because I was vindicated in my column. I was delighted <laughs> because he, he's, uh, I, that's the way I want to see him play. And that's um, what I enjoy. Uh, that's why I've enjoyed watching him for, for um, well, since he came through into the um, Leinster team. But, uh, you know, what I was a little bit concerned about was in the in the first um, number of games, we didn't really see him 
utilized that much and i don't know if it was if it was being held back or whether um the opportunity just didn't arise or they just felt we really have to go out against this england team and it, you know if you're in twickenham you've got to you've got to try everything don't leave uh, don't die wondering as alan gaffney always used to say um but uh, he did, and you know that that in, in, incredible pass that um, he gave to Bundyaki wasn't uh, the only ty- only time he linked between forwards and backs, and and we saw how, in retrospect, how important that last autumn series was for the players that they brought through, the success the players that they brought through had, but also the style of play. Um, we saw and, and we we analysed it on on this podcast before um, that pod that stands as the first pod outside nine, and then you've got you know, three options to pass to Connor, uh, Connor uh, Murray. has three options to pass to. If he passes to the middle uh, forward, then he can drop it either side um, to the forward, one forward inside him or outside, or he can take it on himself, or he can drop it back to you know, a, a ghost runner in behind. And you know, that was, that's what was used. That was, that was almost the, um, exactly the move, that, the setup that was used. It was a little bit further out, and it wasn't using in just forwards. But when you've got someone like Tyke Furling, the skills you have, like that's as good as any centre playing in, in the um, Six Nations. Would have, no one would have delivered that pass any better with, you know, with more uh, subterfuge, selling it uh, better, and actually the execution of the skill. Um, for a man who's so... And he's also incredibly big. He seems to have even got bigger since uh, the autumn. He's you know, a phenomenal scrummer, brilliant carrier. He is a excellent communicator in, in defense and if you know if, if people want to have a look at this game again and you want sometimes you look at it with a different eye look at the amount of times that he's waving players around the corner or telling people to fill in or shouting at players on the outside to keep the defensive line or getting off the defensive line and we used to have in you know my generation we used to have when we'd have props it would be your job is to uh, lock down the scrum and then you spent the most of your time trying to hide them on the field, and that's with almost every team I played with. They were a liability in the defensive line. They, you know, were a liability if you wanted them to do anything, but maybe carry a ball forward. But certainly not this added extra of having, like, like having another centre on the field while being able to do their primary job brilliantly. It just allows um, Ireland to play at a different level, and he now becomes a threat. So, you know, next time you see Ireland play, you know, you'll see him in a similar position. But he'll take the ball on himself, or he'll slip it back to Johnny Sexton. Uh, this time, the defender will have to hold. So you have all these different options that come about from having another brilliant player who is a huge threat as a carrier and who you can't disrespect and and um, fall off him. Being able to execute this type of skill set. Yes, yeah, Shane. I suppose the move that involved that tight furlong pass came from the mind of Joe Schmidt, and as Joe said afterwards, he did it once before against England. Robbie Henshaw almost scored the try. But he knew it worked against this English defence, so they were willing to try it one more time, and it did work. But the idea, first of all, to come up with that concept, that move, and then to put the right players in place in each position uh, for each part of the move, and then also when to choose it, the patience to wait until this England game. Um, all those things involve a sort of a genius, something that you can't really teach. It's something in the mind of Joe Schmidt that makes him the one-off that he is, the brilliant coach that he is. There's something definitely innate um, about um, how he coaches and his knowledge of the game. But, uh, you know, I, I think we, we'd be doing a, a disservice if we just said um, the inspiration pops into his brain and then he, he um, goes, this is going to work against England because, you know, something you know, deep in my gut tells me so. It's, it's, it's actually not. He's an incredibly hard worker. He looks at an incredible amount of film. He has a backroom team that look like an look like an uh, look at an incredible amount of, of footage of opposition teams. They ha- he does have an incredible um, you know rugby intellect and knowledge bank um, and a feeling for what may work and what moves. Um, and what options within moves will work against op- opposition teams. But it's, it's certainly not just pulled out of the, of the sky. He will have watched hours of footage against the England team and the way that they defend, and maybe even individuals, um, and how the individuals defend. And he'll have reports on his desk from uh, the video analyst and the um, um, skills coach and, and the backs coach and the forwards coach about individual players and what their traits are. And then 
you know, being able, he will also have input from the players and what they're comfortable in and have seen what they're comfortable in. He will also then have upskilled players to make them comfortable with delivering a pass like that. And, and the vision, I think more so, the vision to, to see someone like Tyg Furlong and say, you know, you're the person that can deliver this pass because of the threat that you are going forward and given that we, and your ability to execute the pass. Um, and then, you know, to have this series of, of moves and that involve the loop play and go, yes, everybody thinks they, they've got Ireland covered. And I, I consistently say, I say, that loop play, that Ireland, or variations of that loop play, is undefendable if you do it correctly. Um, because there's always an option that you can pick. The play, other opposition have to react. They have to try and cover one of, of the um, areas um, uh, that the loop uh, play or the, uh, the person coming around the loop opens up. And you have to make a decision on that. And when you do make that decision, then if you take the right option, then um, you're going to get uh, the uh, you're going to break them down. So it's it, you know it's definitely a, the, he, he has a you know instinctive knowledge about rugby, but he also has an incredible work ethic and an eye for for looking uh, and breaking teams down. And I, I really hope and, and I think that is something that can be transferred onto another generation of coaches because you even look at the coaches that are in play in the provinces now and the way you know they look at opposition. I think that a lot of that comes from either having worked with Joe Smith or uh, have been made aware of the way he does work. Well, that was a thoroughly enjoyable chat. Thanks very much, guys. Same time next year, maybe, Shane? Two, two grand slams yeah. in a row? Well, listen, we just get a series win in the, in the summer before that. Yeah. New Zealand are back in the autumn. Good to have, <laughs> we can <laughs> win that. And then, yeah, roll into the World Cup with another grand slam victory. Yeah, that would be great. First of all, I'd like to welcome John Delaney here today. Trying to be critical is going to be impossible. Building a house, you build the foundations first, the chimneys at the top, the chimney for us. It's international football. As well, to, to, to John Delaney, uh, the pleasure, the entertainment, the organisation, the skills that you take to everybody is fantastic. But you don't have a chimney unless you've got a very strong foundation. Oh man, there were just so many fun things to talk about with Jerry and Shane there that we barely even touched on the fact that we have a winger with one of the all-time great strike rates in world rugby, Jacob Stockdale. I love watching this try again, just to see how Murray and Stockdale switched on at the exact same time, both realised there's something on here, and Stockdale made the pass for Murray, forced him to pass it to him mm-hmm. by taking this little looping kind of a line around the outside, and suddenly he's away and scoring a different kind of try. He's had these intercept tries, he's beaten a man on a soft shoulder in the inside, he's taken an Italian for pace on the outside mm. and now he shows oh yeah you know it is rugby football Murph yep and he's learning every week I can, uh, uh, yeah <laughs> he is he's while constantly scoring drives but I, I watched his uh, uh, media scrum you know the afterwards mm. he uses the word flip a lot searing analysis alright Murph to end the show no I do problem. need to no ask problem. one more question of our rugby sage Ken earlier uh-huh. what limits Ken are you setting on the future for this Irish rugby team any limits at all um, World Cup glory in a year's time. Yeah, I think I think probably that's the limit. So we won't get we won't. Well, get, I mean, it, given glory. that it's the biggest thing you can win. Yeah. No, but you're saying we, we're going to win it. I I think so. Hmm. I believe so. I mean, we have to win our group to avoid New Zealand in the quarterfinals. It's evident that that Ireland have outgrown the the sport in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, we should actually try and see if we can be accepted as the the. Rugby championship, but I. <laughs> well, how are we going to progress? I as think a nation? that we keep playing these England and Wales and these kind of teams. Every, every I think year. that we're a weird, a weird kind of thing for New Zealand to get a handle on, because they don't feel as though we should even be on the same pitch as them. Realistically, well, that's because we have never group, beaten them until unless it's a group ago. stage match in, in the Rugby yeah. World Cup. We should never have to play these guys. You know, uh, you could maybe get drawn against them in the quarterfinal. But otherwise, there's, no, there's, there's, there's simply no way Ireland and New Zealand can play each other in a competitive game. I don't mean a, you know, a test. I mean a competitive game. So it's going to be pretty weird for them in the final or semi-final of the World Cup next year in Japan. It's going to be the final if... Uh, <coughs> not, that, not that I've committed this to memory, but there's it's all, going to be the final if we finish first in our group. There's a certain estrangement. It's like, what's going on here? You know? Why, how, how is this happening? Clearly, we will win. Clearly, uh, Ireland should not share a pitch with us, and if we come up against them in the World Cup, we will win. 
But, you know, at the same time, there's just there's something a little bit weird going on, which I think may, have, may feed into their, uh, may affect their state of mind going into that game until they get borged. And then, uh, obviously, they will hire Joe Schmidt. And that was borged and not bored. Borged. By our brand of borged. borged. Yeah, Try scoring, borged. freewheeling. Rookie, it's like, right? what just happened there? It's, it's like, I don't even feel like a game took place, but somehow there's, there's a final score and the game is over. I feel like nothing even happened. You know, they look around them at the, at the stadium full of like puzzle-looking Irish fans kind of uncertainly waving their flags. I mean, did we just win the World Cup? <laughs> <laughs> did we just score six tries against New Zealand in the World Cup final? Uh, so It's like those people who wake up and their kidney's been removed. Just a perfect yeah. surgical scar. <laughs> they feel just, fine. This is strange. No kidney. I feel good, but cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so no, I, I, think that. I think it's a good chance of that. Aaron. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Thanks Simon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Kieran. Ken. And well done again, Ken. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Paul Kimmage well on the player's chair, in the player's chair, whatever you call it, he's there tomorrow and it's an amazing interview. So do listen out if you're signed up. Thanks, man. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.